This episode is dedicated to the memories of Brickhouse Brown, Nikolai Volkov, and Brian Christopher Lawler, all who passed away on July 29th. Essentially the same unappreciative crowd full of scumbags from last night. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of the Scumbags Wrestling Podcast, coming to you from London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Sean, and I'm going to actually divide this episode into two parts, so we'll be hearing episode 15 and 16 today. Right here in episode 15, we'll look back at some WWE news and views for the last couple of weeks as I've been away and need to catch up on everything going on. We'll also look back at the month of July in the history of wrestling, including the formation officially of the NWO, the body slam heard around the world, Goldberg winning the title from Hogan, and the creation of War Games. And then later on this evening, episode 16 will be dropping, including an interview with Cody Diener, our look at the Tyson Dukes Wrestling School, and looking back at Impact Wrestling Slammiversary, and looking forward to All In and the Jericho Crews. So thank you for joining us. We'll be right back with some WWE news. I'm Sean Mooney welcoming you to the StarCast Event Center where it has just been announced that the sold-out event in Chicago over Labor Day weekend will now be available worldwide on fight.tv forward slash StarCast. Thousands of fans from across the world have already made their travel plans to join us in Chicago, but now you can join in on all of the fun from the comfort of your own living room. Fight.tv forward slash StarCast will bring you over 20 live events across four days for one low price well below the suggested retail price of over $260. Stay tuned for details on how you can even get $20 in fight credit. That's right, towards your future purchases with the Platinum StarCast Weekend Pass. Hey, is All In going to be on fight too? Hey, speaking of fight, I think Eric Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard are gearing up for one as they prepare for the Monday Night War debate on Thursday, August 30th at StarCast. They are ready for this. So, Bruce, coming up at Starcast, it's you and I head to head at a Monday Night Wars debate. I have mixed emotions, Bruce, because I've learned to like you and respect you. I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you know what I don't respect? I don't respect all the spin, all the distortions, all the lies that you and the WWE had to put out there in order to keep your heads afloat, try to make yourselves feel better about that war. Well, coming up at StarCast, you've got your side of the story. I've got my side of the story. And when it's all said and done, the audience is going to figure out where the truth lies. 
And it's not always with the victor. And you know that. And I know you're thinking about that. So you know what I'm going to do, Bruce? I'm going to be as kind. I'm going to be as gentle as I can. But when it's all over, I'm hoping that you and I are going to be able to remain friends. If not, it's life. We'll find out. Because I'm bringing it. No brag. Just fact. (laughs) Wow. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that winners write the history book. That's why I am going to be the one representing WWE at StarCast in the Monday Night Wars debate. On the other side, the other guy, the other decision maker, the one and the only Eric Bischoff. So finally you get to hear both sides debated why they did what they did, why we did what we did, and how ultimately in the end, only one could remain standing. That was us. And at StarCast, it will be me. Whoa. I think those two are ready to go at it. And I can't wait to see that one. How about you? In the ring at this time, the challengers to my left from the Soviet Union. I'd like to send out our condolences to the family and friends of the late Nikolai Volkov, who was pronounced dead this past Sunday, July 29th. He was 70 years old. Josep Nikolai Prozovic was born October 14, 1947, in Croatia, Yugoslavia. He was a Croatian weightlifter and boxer trying to get into the wrestling business, and unfortunately didn't get too far, until he met up with Stu Hart back in Calgary, who trained him. He was Bipo of the Mongolian tag team, also a mass executioner. He challenged Bruno Sammartino for the WWF World Heavyweight uh, Championship as Nikolai Volkov, probably best known for teaming with the Iron Sheik and winning the tag team titles at the original WrestleMania. Plus, he was also on the first wrestling album, singing Cara Mia Mai. After his tag team venture with Iron Sheik ended, he later teamed with Boris Zukov as the Bolsheviks. But in 1990, he turned face and embraced the American culture, briefly feuding with Zukov and 
sympathizer of Iraq, Sergeant Slaughter. He befriend Hacksaw Jim Duggan and start waving the American flag. After leaving WD for a little while, he'd return as a down-and-out, destitute, desperate character, being exploited by Ted DiBiase, even being a butler with scent signs on his suit jackets as part of the Million Dollar Corporation. After time in the Million Dollar Corporation, he went into semi-retirement. He, Volkoff made a brief cameo on an episode of Shotgun Saturday Night where Todd Hedengel found him homeless sleeping in a box in the streets of New York City. He also appeared at WrestleMania 17 at the Houston Astrodome in the gimmick Battle Royal, which was won by his former tag team partner, the Iron Sheik. In 2005, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame and was inducted by Jim Ross. He made sporadic appearances on WWE TV and in independent rings throughout the years, with his last WWE appearance happening on September 8th as part of a Raw Fallout segment on the internet. Volkov appeared backstage with Rusev and Lana and sang the Soviet National Anthem. Nikolai died in his home on July 29th at the age of 70, days after being released from the hospital in Maryland where he had been treated for dehydration and other issues involving his heart. His contributions to the wrestling world will greatly be remembered and he will be missed by all those who were fans of his. Just hold it down. Hey, hold out. 
on, this is just this is an American album. You know what that means. It doesn't matter when you're a musician, you listen to no man. Listen. That's just We would also like to send our condolences out to Jerry the King Lawler and his family with the passing of his son, Brian Christopher Lawler, also on July 29th. Brian had a 30-year-long career starting at the age of 16, wherein he started wrestling in the Memphis area under his dad's tutelage. He wrestled in the United States Wrestling Association, as one half of the mass tag team, The Twilight Zone, with Tony Williams, under the individual ring names of Nebula and Quasar. After he was unmasked, he continued wrestling in USWA as Too Sexy Brian Christopher, where he had feuds with people like Jeff Jarrett, Bill Dundee, Tom Pritchard, and the Moondogs, along with his father, Jerry Lawler. In 1997, he made his way to the WWE, where he made it to the finals in the light heavyweight championship tournament, but lost to Takamish Nuku. In 1998, he teamed with Too Hot Scott Taylor and formed the tag team of Too Much. With his father on commentary, he never admitted that he was actually Brian's father, and just hinted at things being great and being the best wrestler around. Jim Ross would hint that he was the son of Jerry Lawler, even though Jerry continued to deny it. It was only Paul Heyman who revealed the fact on Raw. After a short break away from the ring, the team of Too Much returned in June of 1999 and renamed themselves Grandmaster Sexay and Scotty Too Hottie, and the tag team was renamed Too Cool. They were later joined by Rikishi, where they began dancing, and in 2000, they defeated Edge and Christian to become the tag team champions. The trio's run ended when they had Rikishi reveal himself as the man behind the wheel of the car that hit Stone Cold Steve Austin at the Survivor Series. Sky Tehati would be out with a broken ankle in 2001, forcing Brian Christopher to team with Steve Blackman, and but was later released due to drug issues and trying to cross the Canadian-U.S. border. From 2002 to 2004, he spent time in TNA wrestling as Brian Lawler. He formed a group called Next Generation with fellow second-generation stars David Flair and Eric Watts. Unfortunately, that didn't last long. He had a brief return to the WWE in 2004, but spent most of his time between 2004 and 2011 on the independent circuit with sporadic appearances on WWE TV from 2011 to 2014. One of his last appearances on 
WTV was on January 5th, 2014, as part of the old school edition of Raw, reuniting with Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati to take on 3MB in a six-man tag match. His final appearance on any WTV happened at the NXT Arrival show on February of 2014 as part of Too Cool in a losing effort as mystery opponents to the Ascension, a tag team who defended their NXT championships. Sadly, earlier this month, Lawler was once again arrested and jailed for a DUI and for evading police. On the early morning of July 29th, Lawler was found hanging in a cell at the Herdman County Jail and was observed to be brain dead. His life support was disabled after his father, Jerry Lawler, had arrived at the hospital to bid his farewell. Lawler was pronounced dead at around 4.40 p.m. Eastern at the age of 46. That's right, on Friday, September 7th, the London Music Hall, Summer Camp Productions, and Bogart Entertainment present Mick Foley, 20 Years of Hell, Mankind, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, WD Hardcore Superstar. Climb on board the 20 Years of Hell tour for a thrill ride 20 years in the making, as Mick Foley, professional wrestling's hardcore legend, takes audiences on an in-depth look at the most famous match of his Hall of Fame career and perhaps the most talked about match in sports entertainment history. With its trademark blend of wit and wisdom, wildness and warmth, that shot of two of his memoirs to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list, Foley will use every tool in his arsenal, dozens of classic promos, hundreds of hours on stage, thousands of matches, and almost a million published words to weave a spellbinding web of stories designed to take fans along for the journey back to June 28, 1998, the night of the infamous Hell in a Cell match. It was the night that Foley somehow survived two spine-rattling falls off and through the ominous cell structure, shrugging off a stint of unconsciousness and finishing the match with a 
front tooth lodged in his nose. Finding humor in the most unlikely of places, 20 years of hell, brings the laughs, but is much more than just a comedic one-man show. He will make you feel like you were there, right there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, watching history write itself. By equal turns of laughs, out loud, funny, stunning, and surreal, and heartwarmingly real, 20 Years of Hell is one of the lifetime chances you hear wrestling's finest storytellers talking about the night he walked down the aisle a wrestler and walked away a legend. Each show begins with recollection of wrestling in the town he was performing in and will conclude with a candid 30 to 45 minute Q&A where all subjects is fair game. Tickets are available now at limited VIP seats that are available too. 8 p.m. at the London Music Hall. From Michael Finney, from Brett the Hitman Hart. DavyBoySmith.com is trying to get a petition together to have Davy Boy Smith in the WWE Hall of Fame, and they got 17,300 signatures, and they might need one more from Bret the Hitman Hart, because I totally believe that the British Bulldog belongs in the WWE Hall of Fame, and it wouldn't be much of a Hall of Fame without him. So I want to back you 100%, Michael Finney, and keep up the good work, because you are the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, and thanks for being a big fan of the Hitman. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Brent Money Banks, and you are listening to Scumbags of Wrestling. Scumbags is money. letting you know that I will be bringing my 20 Years of Hell tour to London, and I'm looking down, oh, at the London Music Hall. Man, that's an incredible place, an incredible venue. I know VIP tickets, as well as general admission, are still on sale, and I will be bringing to life that infamous night from 1998 when I walked down the aisle, a man returned a legend. You won't want to miss it. I'll be talking about it, probably exaggerating the tales, but I'll be doing it right there in London on September 7th. Yeah, realmcfoley.com, your place to go for tickets and information. That's right. On Friday, September 7th, the London Music Hall, Summer Camp Productions, and Bogart Entertainment present McFoley, 20 Years of Hell, Mankind, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, WD Hardcore Superstar. Climb on board the 20 Years of Hell tour for a thrill ride 20 years in the making. As McFoley, professional wrestling's hardcore legend, takes audiences on an in-depth look at the most famous match of his Hall of Fame career and perhaps the most talked about match in sports entertainment history. With his trademark blend of wit and wisdom, wildness and warmth, that shot of two of his memoirs to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list, Foley will use every tool in his arsenal, dozens of classic promos, hundreds of hours on stage, thousands of matches, and almost a million published words to weave a spellbinding web of stories designed to take fans 
along for the journey back to t June 28, 1998, the night of the infamous Hell in a Cell match. It was the night that Foley somehow survived two spine-rattling falls off and through the ominous cell structure, shrugging off a stint of unconsciousness and finishing the match with a front tooth lodged in his nose. Finding humor in the most unlikely of places, 20 years of hell, brings the laughs but is much more than just a comedic one-man show. He will make you feel like you were there, right there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, watching history write itself. By equal turns of laughs, out loud, funny, stunning, and surreal, and heartwarmingly real, 20 Years of Hell is one of the lifetime chances you hear wrestling's finest storytellers talking about the night he walked down the aisle a wrestler and walked away a legend. Each show begins with Mick's recollection of wrestling in the town he was performing in and will conclude with a candid 30 to 45 minute Q&A where all subjects is fair game. Tickets are available now at limited VIP seats that are available too. 8pm at the London Music Hall. In WWE news, Hulk Hogan was recently reinstated into the WWE Hall of Fame during the Extreme Rules pay-per-view in Pittsburgh. He'd been flown into Ohio and made his way from there to Pittsburgh. Hogan had been removed from the list of Hall of Famers due to a video that surfaced in 2015 from comments that were recorded in 2006 where he dropped the N-bomb when it was he was talking about men dating her, his daughter, Brooke. While backstage at Extreme Rules, he gave a speech to all the talent about the dangers of social media and how, at any time, you could find yourself recorded. He cited his own issues as an example because they will uh, never know who is recording. He also didn't seem very apologetic and said he didn't even remember saying the comments that were recorded. His comments and lack of apology actually upset some of the African-American talent that were in the meeting and locker room. Mark Henry made a comment uh, Mark Henry made a comment to TMZ stating that some of the guys were saying to hell with him, while others felt that if Hogan is willing to be a part of the change and not a problem, then okay. The New Day released a statement through Kofi as one of the only address... The New Day released a statement through Kofi Kingston as their one and only address of the situation. They said it was hard to uh, forget regardless of time, but they will not respond with more feelings of hate. Instead, they are going to choose to be not associate with Hogan unless there is a genuine offer to change. Maybe they can uh, change, only time can tell. 
Tyus O'Neill responded, refusing to shake Hogan's hand and even uh, walked out of the meeting that Hogan spoke at. Titus cleared things up, reporting, and cleared up those reports, saying that he was present, and he also said that he echoes the sentiments of Tyus O'Neill reportedly refused to shake Hogan's hand and even walked out of the meeting that Hogan spoke at. Tyus cleared up those rumors, stating that he was present for it. He also said that he echoes the sentiments and dissatisfaction expressed by many of his fellow contemporaries concerning Mr. Belia's apology and its lack of true uh, nature, response, and the desire to change. Mr. Belia's apology that he didn't know he was being recorded is not remorse for the hateful and violent utterances he made which reprise language that has caused violence and against blacks and minorities for centuries. I find it interesting that Hogan was brought in, especially at a time when big money contracts were being offered for TV deals. Though, at the same time, those deals were already signed, then they brought Hogan back. I don't know what kind of role he's going to have, especially at his age. Anything's possible, I guess, that he could be brought in more as an ambassador and do some goodwill deeds trying to clean up his act as he's done stuff with the Boys and Girls Club. Or he could make it on air role as a future GM of one of the brands. Anything's possible. I don't know if it's a good uh, move by them to bring him back in, but only time will tell. Last week, Stephanie McMahon made a huge announcement involving the women's division. However, at the start of the night of Raw, Vince McMahon was out there, and there's reports that he doesn't want to do any more on-air appearances as he's feeling he's looking very old and doesn't want to give off that impression and remain, I guess, dignified in what we remember him as instead of coming out looking his age, which is over 70, I believe 72 for that matter. However, he did invite Stephanie and Triple H to the ring where all the talent was on top of the stage, including the women from SmackDown Live. Triple H, uh, mentioned how proud he was of how the women have brought things about since he feels he was one of the starters of how women's wrestling changed in NXT. Stephanie then took over with her regular PR work as though she was the one who made the revolution and evolution of the women's division possible. She brought up how for three days, the hashtag give divas a chance was trending and that sparked the interest from the office to finally listen to the fans and give them what they wanted. As such, the women have done so many different things, including Hell in a Cell matches and even a Raw Rumble. And now the big announcement was that on October 28th, there will be a network special or a pay-per-view, depending on how you get your wrestling content. But on October 28th, Evolution will happen on the network.
This event is scheduled to have 50 talent from the past, present, and the future of the WWE. Obviously, we'll be seeing talent like Beth Phoenix, Trish Jias, and Lita returning from the past. Probably many of the other ones that we saw at the Royal Rumble, including Michelle McCool, Kelly Kelly, Tori Wilson, and others will return as well. The only thing that is definitely known is that there's four matches scheduled on the card for sure, with all three women's titles on the line from Raw, SmackDown, and NXT, plus the finals of the Mae Young Classic. It's definitely interesting that they're saying that this is the first women's only pay-per-view when other organizations such as Impact did a one-night-only event five years ago, and Smash Wrestling does a Kanusa tournament every year, which is all women. As much as I do love WWE, it's interesting also how they like to rewrite history that they also destroyed at the same time. Because before that, they had decent women's wrestling. Then they brought in the whole Divas, where there wasn't really much wrestling except for Alundra Blaze and Bull Nakano. Then we had some good wrestling from Trish, Lita, and Ivory, and everybody else from that generation only to be destroyed by the likes of Tori Wilson, Stacey Keebler, Kelly Kelly, and those who want to be divas like Candice Michelle. It's definitely an evolution for WWE, but not necessarily the wrestling world. Let's hope that WWE does not mess this up, as this is an opportunity to make up for the lack of women being allowed to be a part of the Saudi Arabia shows thanks to the culture uh, differences between the rest of the world and Saudi Arabia. But before the Evolution pay-per-view can happen on October 28th, there's going to be the May Young Classic number 2 for 2018. It'll record on August 8th through the 9th at Full Sail University. On June 22nd, the WWE confirmed that the tournament would once again be held with 32 competitors, of those 32 competitors, the United States, Japan, Scotland, England, China, India, Portugal, South Korea, Canada, Australia, Brazil, Wales, and Puerto Rico will all be represented. There'll be some notable talent, including Diona Perrazzo, who was scheduled to be at the All In event in Chicago. NXT head trainer, Robbie Brookside's daughter, Zia Brookside, will be involved, along with, from Canada, just announced today, Vanessa Craven, as we know her from the Malice team in Smash Wrestling. Returning from last year's event and from Smash Wrestling plus TNA and other notable organizations is Mia Yim. She most recently had her match against... Matt Riddle at the Northern Tournament. Io Shirai from Japan was recently announced on their tour of Japan as signing with NXT, and she will be a part of the Mae Young Classic. Another Canadian involved will be Nicole Matthews. Last year's standout and a recent standout on the UK tournament events on the WD Network is Tony Storm 
Most people expect her to be in at least the final four, if not the finals of the tournament. And finally, two of the most hyped-up names or recognizable names that will be on the uh, roster include Season 3 of NXT winner Caitlin and former WWE champion. She will be returning to a WWE ring to challenge for the title in the Mae Young Classic. And Ashley Rain, formerly known as Madison Rain of Impact Wrestling, we just recently saw her at Slammiversary losing to Sue Young. And now she will be in the May Young Classic. So sometime after August 9th, they'll be starting to release the various matches from the recording on the WWE Network, with it all culminating at the Evolution pay-per-view, where the winner of the May Young Classic will be crowned. Speaking a moment ago of Matt Riddle, there's constant rumor and innuendo that is stating that Matt Riddle has signed a contract with WWE. Recently, he's ended some of his bookings that happened around the SummerSlam time. It is expected that Riddle will appear as part of the NXT crowd and be one of the guest spots that they usually do when somebody new is coming into the organization. Both WD and New Japan had looked at Matt before, but really didn't latch on to him, probably because of his uh, liking of the marijuana smoking and taking part in that culture. However, New Japan recently made interest in him, which sparked WD again to look at him, and it looks like WD has won the war to bring in the former mixed martial art superstar, Matt Riddle. Have you checked out the Walk with Elias music on Spotify or wherever else you get your music? If not, take a check on it. It's just 15 minutes of your time, four songs done by Elias. And you can even check out the Walk with Elias documentary, The Making of the Album, on the WWE Network. It's quite the uh, interesting documentary. It's fun watch, and I highly recommend it. This past <clears throat> This past Thursday, Glenn Jacobs, who wrestled as Kane in the WWE since 1997, was declared the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee following his victory in Thursday's race. The Republican candidate declared victory over Democrat opponent Linda Haney. Jacobs has lived in Tennessee for the past 23 years with a insurance company and real estate company that he owns with his wife, Crystal. 
This past May, he won the Democratic nomination, and the election was this past Thursday, where he won with a two-to-one ratio of votes over Haney. As most fans know, Jacob started in the USWA as Unabomber, and eventually made his way to WRF, where he portrayed Dr. Isaac Yankum, and then eventually the fake Diesel. It wasn't until he became Kane in 1997, accompanied by Paul Bearer as Undertaker's presumed dead brother, that he finally found success. Jacobs had a lot of different incarnations of Kane, including corporate Kane without the mask and wearing a suit and being a part of the corporation, but every time we see him, he's the big red monster. He just recently teamed with Dan O'Brien to reform Team Hell No just days before the election. Jacobs takes office in on September 1st, and it is presumed that now that he is the mayor of Knox, Tennessee, that he will not be resuming his role as Kane in the WWE anytime soon. We'd like to thank Glenn Jacobs for his great work and the great memories that he has given professional wrestling over his multi-years as a superstar. Plus, we'd also like to wish him the best with his new endeavor as the mayor. With SummerSlam shaping up the way it is, it appears that the rumored Undertaker versus John Cena rematch from WrestleMania has been scrapped and will not be on the card. Undertaker, by most accounts, probably should have retired when he left his hat and jacket in the middle of the ring after losing to Roman Reigns. But as we saw, he returned to face John Cena in a match that he won in under three minutes. Since then, we've also seen him in a casket match against Rusev at the Greatest Royal Rumble and teaming with Braun Strowman and Roman Reigns in a six-man tag match. Maybe the match with Cena will still happen, but might have to wait till either Survivor Series or the Royal Rumble, as Cena has been away from the scene lately, recording voiceovers for the multitude of different cartoon characters and movies that are coming out, along with filming the upcoming Bumblebee movie. Matt Hardy has recently tweeted that his pelvis and lower back area seem to be fusing together, which probably hasn't helped with all the leg drops that he's done over the years, along with all the other death-defying matches that he's taken part in with TLC and the various kind of action that he's taken and bumps over the years. This would definitely explain why he continues to team with Bray Wyatt as he can then cover up some of his action and be limited in the ring while he heals. There's also rumor that WWE is interested in bringing in Mexican stars Pentagon Jr. and his brother Phoenix. They both have wrestled in AAA, Lucha Underground, and currently have been featured in matches on Impact Wrestling. It is unknown at this time if either of them are available to even talk to WWE about contracts, as Lucha Underground might have them still under contract for a few more seasons before they can officially go to anywhere the size of a WWE. 
you're looking to get into the wrestling business, check out the Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory. His school is located right here in London, Ontario, Canada. Learn from one of Canada's best wrestlers around. It's located at 309 Exeter Road, and it's open Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 6 p.m. till 8.30 p.m. The Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory, teaching the new generation of hopefuls into superstars. My name is The Muscle, Smash Wrestling's hottest free agent. I toss bodies and wheel hotties, and you're listening to the Scumbags of Wrestling podcast. It is the game, Triple H. The WWE truly is a global phenomenon. The WWE universe exists in more than 800 million homes worldwide and speaks over 25 languages. But Australia has been a home away from home for WWE for over 30 years. In 2002, though, we broke ground when I competed in a historic main event against The Rock and Brock Lesnar at the Global Warning Pay-Per-View. And now, I am truly honored and privileged to be able to announce WWE's long-awaited pay-per-view return to the land down under. WWE Super Showdown will take place in Melbourne, Australia at the iconic Melbourne Cricket Ground on Saturday, October 6th, live on the WWE Network. And we are bringing our biggest and best WWE superstars from both Raw and SmackDown Live, including John Cena, Roman Reigns, Sasha Banks, Braun Strowman, Charlotte Flair, AJ Styles, The New Day, Daniel Bryan, and the baddest woman on the planet, Ronda Rousey. Not to mention my opponent at WWE Super Showdown, the one and only, the phenom, The Undertaker. It has been six long years since one of the greatest rivalries in WWE history was said to be dead and buried. But legends, legends never die. The Undertaker and I have some unfinished business. At WWE Super Showdown, The Undertaker will once again know why I am the cerebral assassin. And Undertaker, I promise you, this is no game. So Melbourne, Australia, there's just one thing left to ask. Are you ready? Are you looking to get your own Scumbags Wrestling t-shirt or the Scumbags Podcast t-shirt? Well, look no further than our friends over at Twisted Tees at TwistedTeesMerch.com. Since their company launched in 2006, they've become one of the top screen printers known for their large, colorful, high-detailed prints. Their theory behind what they decide to print is simple. It's about keeping it real and taking you back to your early years, browsing through endless movies at your local video store, only to be sucked in by the very intriguing cover art. Even if the movie itself wasn't so great, it's that original cover that will always remain locked inside your head. Over the years, they've become even more creative with introducing limited edition designs. 
with the amazing feedback they received from their Warriors and Zombies hoodies, as well as their button-up work shirts. They will bring you even more one-of-a-kind designs. All their products are screen-printed and embroidered directly in their shop. They don't use any outside sources to produce their goods, nor do they use cheap iron-ons. They guarantee heads will turn when you wear Twisted Tees to your next outing. Twisted Tees also provides printing for Kill Effect, Shockstock, Monsters of Schlock, Shadow uh, Windbrook, and Vagrancy Films. So look out for Twisted Tees online, once again, at TwistedTeesMerch.com and get your own Scumbags of Wrestling t-shirt for just $25. It's the best day of your life, because the realest guy in the room is coming to the 5th Annual London Comic Con. Meet wrestling superstar and rapper Eric Arndt, formerly known as Enzo Amore, now known as The Real One, appearing Saturday and Sunday. The 5th Annual London Comic Con, presented by Start.ca, happens this October 26th to 28th at the Western Fair Agriplex. It's a three-day celebration of art, comics, and pop culture with celebrity guests, vendors, and more. Southwestern Ontario's largest fan event. Come meet from Star Trek The Next Generation, Marina Sirtis, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, James Marsters, Ted Raimi from Xena Warrior Princess, the Yellow Peril Ranger, Serena Vincent, the young Boba Fett from Star Wars Episode Two, Daniel Logan, from They Live, David Keith, from They Live, Keith David. Mr. McFreely from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, David Newell. And former UFC star and WWF Intercontinental Champion, Ken Shamrock. Plus more announcements still to come. Tickets are on sale now. For tickets and more information, go to londoncomiccon.ca. Thanks to super partners, start.ca, M&T Printing, Lens Mill Stores, Heroes Comics, Toboggan Brewing, Western Fair District, and media partners, London's Best Rock, FM96, Classic Rock, Free 98.1, and Fanatics. London Comic Con, October 26th to 28th. It's time to look back on the history of wrestling in the month of July. It's time for this month's Time Warp.
shot ever given to professional wrestling. That man dead right there, Hulk Hogan. Let's get everybody out of the dressing room right now and kick his rear end. Unbelievable, brother. You're what have so I been saying all these years? Huh? What have I been saying all these years? Oh, oh God, my can... God. A career That's... of a lifetime. It's right down the drain, kid. I hope you love it. Can you, you see just sold little, your soul to the devil. See those little hulksters with the tears rolling down their face right now? We are not going to even acknowledge that three count. Now what happens to us? What happens now to WCW? There was no three count. I never thought I would say that he's yellow, but he may be wearing red, but he's wearing red and yellow. What do we do now? Uh, I'll tell you what. Um, this is a... Excuse me. What in the world are you thinking? Me, Gene, the first thing you need to do is to tell these people to shut up if you want to hear what I got to say. I have been with you for so many years. For you to join up with the likes of these two men absolutely makes me sick to my stomach. And I think that these people here and a lot of other people around the world have had just about enough of this man, this man, and you want to put yourself in this group, you've got to be kidding me. Well, the first thing you got to realize, brother, is this right here is the future of wrestling. You can call this the new world order of wrestling brother these two men right here came from a great big organization up north and everybody was wondering who the third man was well who knows more about that organization than me brother i've been there i've done that you have made the wrong decision in my opinion well let me tell you something i made that organization a monster I made people rich up there. I made the people that ran that organization rich up there, brother. And when it all came to pass, the name Hulk Hogan, the man Hulk Hogan, got bigger than the whole organization, brother. And then billionaire Ted, amigo, he wanted to talk turkey with Hulk Hogan. Well, billionaire Ted promised me movies, brother. Ted promised me millions of dollars, and billionaire Ted promised me world-caliber matches. And as far as billionaire Ted goes, Eric Bischoff and the whole WCW goes, I'm bored, brother. That's why these two guys here, the so-called outsiders, these are the men I want us, my friends. They're the new blood of professional wrestling, brother. And not only are we going to take over the whole wrestling business with Hulk Hogan and the new blood, the monsters with me, we will destroy everything in our path, Mean Gene.
Look at all of this crap in this ring. This is what's in the future for you if you want to hang around the likes of this bad hall and this bad neck. As far as I'm concerned, all of this crap in the ring represents these fans out here. For two years, brother, for two years, I held my head high. I did everything for the charities. I did everything for the kids. In the reception I got when I came out here, you fans can stick it, brother. Because if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, you people wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff would be still selling meat from a truck in Minneapolis. And if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, all these Johnny-come-latelys that you see out here, wrestling wouldn't be here. I was selling out the world, brother, while they were bumming gas to put in their car to get to high school. So the way it is now, brother, with Hulk Hogan and the New World Organization of Wrestling, brother, me and the new blood by my side, what you gonna do when the New World Organization runs wild on you? What you gonna do? What are you hey, gonna do? And that was how the NWO officially began. This trip back in time takes us to July 7th, 1996, Daytona Beach, Florida, for the Bash at the Beach. Well, initially, the NWO did start on May 19th when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash left the WDAF to go to WCW. It wasn't established until that night at Bash at the Beach. Scott Hall had shown up in May during the Memorial Day weekend on May 27th of the edition of Nitro. He came, he came through the audience and interrupted the match involving the Mahler and Steve Dahl. He took a microphone, said, you know who I am and you want a war? You got a war. The following week, the medium guy brought in the big guy, Kevin Nash, and it was just the two outsiders for the longest time. They showed up at the Great American Bash in June 96, issuing a challenge before powerbombing Eric Bischoff through a stage. It all seemed as though the outsiders were there and still portraying Razor and Diesel and coming from WWF to invade the WCW. It wasn't until lawsuits started uh, coming that they had to reveal themselves as actually being Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. The challenge was set that they would have a six-man tag at Bash at the Beach. It was billed as a hostile takeover match and was scheduled as the main event. Representing WCW was Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Macho Man Savage. They all came out in solidarity wearing face paint just like Sting to signify that they were together to take down the Outsiders. Even as the match began, there was still no idea who the third man would be to team with Hall and Nash. It was essentially a handicap match, three on two. In the early stages of the match, Lex Luger was injured and needed to be removed from the ringside area on a stretcher. The match continued as a regular tag team match. 
The match reached its climax at approximately the 16-minute mark, shortly after the hot tag from Sting to Savage. Savage went on the attack, nailing both outsiders with repeated axe handle smashes from the top rope. However, while the referee Randy Anderson was checking on Hall, Hall grabbed his shirt and distracted him while Nash nailed Savage with a low blow and knocked both men to the mat. With all four men down, Anderson had no choice but to begin counting them down and out as he did not see the low blow to begin with. As he began his count, the fans' attention turned to the entrance area as Hulk Hogan entered and began walking to the ring to a loud roar from the crowd. Hall spotted him and immediately fled the ring. Hogan, who had uh, not been seen on, seen on WCW TV for some time, climbed in the ring to chase away Hall and Nash and tore off his uh, t-shirt. The most interesting part was the fact that as Hogan was coming down, Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes were all gung-ho for Hogan coming to save the day and wave the WCW flag. It was mysteriously Bobby Heenan who questioned the loyalty of Hogan. Of course, for years, Hogan and Heenan had many heated battles in the WWF and over in WCW. So there was genuine distrust between the two as it was. So as Shivani and Dusty were cheering for the entrance, Bobby quickly asked, Yes, but whose side is he on? really isn't known whether or not he knew for sure that Hogan was going to be the third man for the Outsiders, or this was just wild speculation based on their history and Heenan keeping that aspect alive. With the fans still cheering wildly, Hogan stood in the corner and then hit his longtime friend Randy Savage with a leg drop, stunning the crowd into silence and turning heel for the first time since his AWA days in 1981. The Outsiders then returned to the ring to celebrate with their now-revealed partner, as Hogan dropped the leg for a third time on Savage. Hall went down and made the three-count, which would not be an official ending to the match. Hogan threw uh, the referee from the ring and hit Savage one more time. The official result was a no contest, and Savage had to be carried from the ring by an exhausted sting. After the match, Mean Gene Orkland came into the ring to interview Hogan. During the interview, Hogan exclaimed that he, Hall, and Nash were the new world order of wrestling, giving the group its name, the NWO. From there, the organization would end up adding X-Pac as six. Ted DiBiase, Virgil as Vincent, and many more former WWE stars, and it just became a really big cluster to the fact that everybody seemed to get beat up one day by the NWO, and then the next week they were being on their side. There's many people from WCW that jumped ship as well, such as the Giant, who lost to Hogan at Hogwild, only to join them the next week. The same happened with Big Bubba Rogers and many others. Eric Bischoff eventually was revealed as the man behind everything in the NWO, which really made for interesting conflict. But at that time, it just built so much 
that helped the 83 weeks of WCW beating the WWF. Eventually, Savage, Sting, and Luger would all become members of the NWO in one form or another, whether it was part of the original Black and White or part of the Wolf Pack, which totally diminished everything that was part of WCW Leftover, with the exception of the Cruiserweights and the Horsemen. Over the next few years in WCW, it became extremely watered down, and Hogan ended up leaving. Jeff Jarrett took over. Bret Hart became part of it. There was a Latino world order. But if it wasn't for that faithful night on July 7th, 1996, where it all began officially, the Monday Night Wars wouldn't have been as hot as they were. Yeah, I'm asked so many times uh, says dream uh, where do war, ga- war games come from I, I heard that you invented it or you see this in social media all the time saying well Dusty Rhodes invented war games he was part of the first war games obviously I was but uh, what made the match happen uh, was I was looking for some type of uh, uh, creative out uh, to where I was getting beat up by the four horsemen really five count J.J. Dillon and I had different partners and we were fighting this war and I had just come from seeing uh Tina Turner, my girlfriend, and Mel Gibson in the Thunderdome, right? And I see this cage, and I see this top on the cage. And I know through the years in my industry, the cage match has always been a big part, especially down south, when you blew off matches. And so I said, has there ever been two rings with a cage, one cage covering both rings with the, with the top on it and two doors at each end and two teams of five? You know, there's guys behind the scenes everywhere, and we don't get to name them or talk about them a lot. But Klondike Bill was a great performer in the ring and outside of the ring. And as he got older, he just loved being around the business. He became the guy that set up the ring. Canadian Hall of Famer, former wrestling great, and now Chief Wrestling Ring Assembly Technician for the NWA, Klondike Bill. Klondike, good to have you here. So, and I coming go, back from I Greensboro, you... I got a white sheet of paper in the light of the, of the car, and I kind of drew an outline of the way I wanted the war games to look, the way the cage was. And I knew Klondike would be back at the office there in Charlotte, you know, unloading the cage and putting, I mean, the the ring and putting everything up. So I go, I get, by the time I get there, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty roaring by the time I get there. I got this idea and I, want, I don't want to wait till in the morning. So I lay it out to Klondike on the street, out in the parking lot, on the street, get on my knees and get him on my knees with a flashlight and show him I want this built. And I've got the okay from Jimmy Crockett and Crockett Promotions. He's standing right over there, so you can build this thing. He said, well, where does he go? I said, it's going to hang above the ring and it's going to drop down. He thought I was completely nuts, you know what I mean, at the time. Really just, they would set the cage up for regular cage matches. It would take an hour to watch them. You would be in the back and they would, you know, it wasn't dropped from the ceiling, you know. Uh, you know, they they brought it in side by side at a time and they set it up and they tied it together and there it was. This thing was going to be dropped with a top on it covering two rings, okay, with two doors on each, on each end. And old Klondike, uh, he worked on it like a mad scientist. You know what I mean? I could see him with that thing flipped down. 
welding as it started to come to life. You know what I mean? So, and there it was. Uh, you know, it was an event. It was an event for me to watch it come to life. It was almost like, it's like anybody that, that, that creates anything, I think, once they see it, once you feel it, once once it's been yours, or once you've touched it and you watch it and you sit back and you see it come to life, it's it's amazing. It's like babies being born. Nothing is more amazing than that, obviously, but not comparing babies to war games. But it, it's, it's just something that comes over you to where for that second, it uh, it takes your breath away, man. It's just like, wow. Our next stop in time is July 4th, 1987 for the War Games. The War Games was created by Dusty Rhodes and was inspired by a viewing of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It was originally used as a specialty match for the Four Horsemen. The first War Games match took place at the Omni in Atlanta during the NWA's Great American Bash 1987 tour, where it was known as War Games, the match beyond. It would be used three more times during that year in Miami, Chicago, and Long Island. The following year, it was used during the Great American Bash Tour of 88 at 11 house shows. The NWA would use it one last time under their banner at the Great American Bash 89. It wouldn't be used again until 1991 by WCW and then subsequently year later in various forms at different pay-per-views, including Fall Brawl. The War Games match consisted of uh, two teams of five facing off with each other in staggering entry format. The setup of the cage consisted of two rings side-by-side with a ring encompassing rectangular cage that covered both rings but not a ringside area. Doors were placed on the far corners of the cage, near where the opposing teams would wait to enter, so the teams would not come into contact before they entered the match. The match began with one member from each team being selected to face off in a five-minute period. A member from one side of the team, usually determined by a coin toss, and almost always the heel team, would win in order to provide heat would enter the cage giving this team a temporary two-on-one handicap advantage for the next two minutes this would continue every two minutes until all members of the teams were in the cage which would bring us to the match beyond at that point both teams would wrestle each other in the cage until any one of the participants either submitted surrendered or is knocked unconscious there originally were no pinfalls, no countouts, no disqualifications. However, later WCW versions began to allow pinfalls. The first war games saw the team of the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, along with Nikita Koloff, Dusty Rhodes, and Paul Ellering, defeating the four horsemen consisting of Ric Flair, Honor Anderson, Lex Luger, Tully Blanchard, and J.J. Dillon. At the 22:10 mark, when Road Warriors forced Dylan to submit after a doomsday device where he landed awkwardly on his right arm. Later that month, on July 31st, the Road Warriors, 
Hawk and Animal, along with Nikita Koloff, Dusty Rhodes, and Paul Ellering, would once again defeat the Four Horsemen with Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, and the War Machine at the 1938 mark of the match, when Animal forced the War Machine to submit by gouging his eyes with a spiked armband. This would be the start of a tradition that would carry on to produce 33 more war games over the years, leading up to 2018. Triple H brought back the war games concept to the WWE with his NXT brand, seeing the Undisputed Era facing off against Sanity and the Authors of Pain. There'll be another war games match happening this November as part of NXT TakeOver War Games, part of the Summer Survivor Series weekend, and also MLW will be presenting their own war games later on this summer. Our trip back in time takes us to July 6, 1998. On this date, Goldberg wins the heavyweight title from Hulk Hogan on Nitro. Bobby Heenan had begun taking the name The Man to Colin Goldberg as he was the last great hope in the Monday Night Wars against the WWF in the late 90s. By the summer of 1998, the WWF had seized control of the Monday Night Wars led by Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. They had a strong mid-card roster, as well as both The Rock and Triple H. Meanwhile, over in WCW, they languished with a bloated roster full of egomaniacs who couldn't get along with a toxic working environment backstage that was only getting worse by the day. The New World Order, which had dominated the promotion for two years straight, had grown to include even the top WCW superstars. It was stale as old bread, but if you wanted a piece of the main event pie, you essentially had to join up. That was until Goldberg broke the mold by showing up on Nitro. His rise to the top was quick and very incredible. His first match with WCW came in September of 97, and he won the U.S. title a mere seven months later in April of 98. WCW fed Goldberg jobber after jobber until so many fans had jumped aboard the hype chain, there was no other choice but to move it forward. Goldberg started getting higher-level opponents and even beat Raven for the U.S. title. It felt like the prosecutor of what was precursor of what was to come, and that was exactly what it was. With the WCW audience moving over to WWE again, Eric Bischoff made a desperate move for ratings and came up with the title match of Goldberg versus Hulk Hogan. It was set for the Georgia Dome on Monday Night Nitro, not on a pay-per-view or anything like that, and with very little hype. Hogan agreed to drop the heavyweight championship to Goldberg, putting him over clean, which is very unusual for Hogan to do, especially in that era. The stupid part came when he decided to do this 
as a non-pay-per-view and just an episode of Nitro. But before Goldberg could get his hands on Hulk Hogan, he had to battle Scott Hall first. Goldberg defeated Hall with ease. When he got to Hogan, the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia, was at a fever pitch. The promotion managed to pack some 40,000 strong in there to watch Goldberg's crowning achievement. As was tradition with all Goldberg matches, this championship match was no different. It was a quick and short match. With Hogan getting in just a little bit of offense, Hogan was eventually overwhelmed by Goldberg, and after a spear and jackhammer, he was the world heavyweight champion and the U.S. champion at the same time, and the undefeated streak remained alive. The ploy worked, as WCW won the ratings war that night with a 4.8 to WWF's 4.4. The actual match drew a 6.9 rating, which was a record at that time. Unfortunately for WCW, they would lose the Monday Night Wars officially on November 6, 1998, as they would never win another ratings night after that. As for Goldberg, he would go on to lose the title later on that year to Kevin Nash at Starcade in a controversial decision that had been panned by critics for years, as Scott Hall used a nightstick shock stick on Goldberg, allowing Nash to get the victory.
Our next trip back in time takes us to July 4th, 1993, with the slam heard round the world. After the evil Japanese champion had defeated Hulk Hogan at the King of the Ring 1993, the WWF went looking for its next American hero. Through his American spokesperson, James E. Cornett, Yokozuna, and Mr. Fuji had challenged any American to meet them on the USS Intrepid on July 4th to do what Hulk Hogan could not do, slam the mighty Yokozuna. As we've seen over the years, Vince McMahon is a very patriotic American and would love to be his own hero. He loves to celebrate everything American and honor it with as much pride as any true patriot can. It was definitely a different time in 1993 as the WWE was also facing steroid uh, scandal that rocked the organization to its core and led the removal of a lot of key players, such as Hulk Hogan. This brought in a new era of smaller, more technical wrestlers such as Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, but there were a few big boys left, and one of them was the future Hall of Famer Yokozuna. The Japanese superstar was actually Rodney Anawai, who was a professional wrestler from the famous Anawai Samoan family. The Japanese wrestler was actually a Samoan dynasty member from the Anawai family. His uncles were the Wild Samoans Afansika, who trained him from an early age in the family business. He took on the name the Great Kokina while wrestling overseas in Japan, and he spent uh, some more time in Mexico, learning the craft and gaining the experience necessary to be a star in the sport. He made a brief appearance in Jim Cornette's promotion in August of 87, facing Ron Simmons at a host show, but his first major exposure in the U.S. came in the American Wrestling Association as Coquina Maximus. Wrestling as a Samoan superstar, he was managed by Sheik Adrian El Kese. In the story, he is responsible for breaking Greg Gagne's leg and ending his career. In 91, Anawai was known as Coquina Maximus and was billed as the biggest Samoan wrestler ever. In the late fall of 92, Yokozuna made his way to the WWE, where he beat Virgil soundly at the Survivor Series 92, then went on to win the Royal Rumble in 1993, securing himself a title match at WrestleMania 9 against then-champion Bret the Hitman Hart. Through some shenanigans at the end, with Mr. Fuji throwing salt in Bret Hart's face, Yokozuna became the WWF champion and was promptly challenged by Hulk Hogan when Mr. Fuji laid down the challenge. Less than two minutes later, Hulk Hogan was your new WWF champion and would carry that title into the King of the Ring in June of 93. During their match, Hogan was not unable to slam Yokozuna, which was unknown of in any of Hogan's other matches against larger men, especially when he was able to easily slam the Big Boss Man or Earthquake, and even Andre the Giant. As a way to celebrate his dominance, the WWF set up 
uh, what would be called the Body Slam Challenge aboard the USS Intrepid. The idea was that no professional athlete from any sport could pick up Yokozuna and slam him. The prize for doing so would be a red, white, and blue pickup truck and the ability to make the claim, according to WWE, that the person had defended the pride of America. Stars from hockey, basketball, baseball, and football all made an attempt to lift the mighty Yokozuna. Even members of the WWF locker room, including the Steiner brothers, Crush, and Macho Man Randy Savage, all attempted and failed to slam Yokozuna. Just as they were about to claim victory for Yoko triumphing over America, one man made a dramatic entrance via helicopter to save the day. They speculated who it would be that was rolling in. Perhaps Hulk Hogan, the real American, was back once again to defend the honor of his great country. But no, he was gone. In his place... The former narcissist, Lex Luger. Wearing an American flag shirt, Luger got off the helicopter and hit the ring to attempt to body slam Yokozuna. Even Bobby Heenan tried to stop him from doing so since they had their friendship as Heenan brought in Luger to the WWF. The champion charged at the challenger but was sent into the corner before Lex Luger landed a forearm on the comeback Luger picked up the more than 500-pound monster and slammed him. America won once again. This is actually the beginning of the Luger big push as Hogan's replacement. Gone was the narcissist, and in his place, the All-American, who was made in the USA. Suddenly, he was touring around the country on a bus known as the Lux Express and giving a huge push as the next Big baby fits to carry the company. The gimmick was ultimately a flop and never really got over anything close to what they were hoping for. The Lex Express took him all the way to the Palace of Auburn Hills for SummerSlam 93, where Luger would finally be able to challenge Yokozuna for the WWF Championship. Unfortunately, in a losing battle, he won by countout but never got the title. Crowd. And look at this, ready to go. Come on, 
Savage, try, try, lift him. He can't do it, it can't be done. I guess at this time, it appeared as though Yokozuna, in fact, had humiliated America. He had embarrassed the professional athletes who attempted to slam him on board the USS Intrepid, the last of which was the macho man Randy Savage, who wanted to have one more go. A round of applause for the competitors, asked for by Todd Pettengill, the host, and then from there, something happened on board the Intrepid. As Yokozuna and Mr. Fuji looked on wondering just who had the gall, who had the audacity at the very last moment to step forward. Fans couldn't believe their eyes as they said, no, could it be? Yes, it was Lex Luger. Lex Luger, who had always been proud of himself.
Sedgwick, saluting the great country we live in and saluting one of the great competitors who stepped forward to be counted on July 4, Sunday, America's birthday. I'd like to thank you all for joining me for this episode of the Scumbags Wrestling Podcast as we look back on the news of WAE and also the past with our Time Warp section looking back at the month of July. I encourage you to join us later on tonight as we'll have episode number 16 looking at the independent wrestling scene including Smash Wrestling and the Super Showdown a trip to Tyson Duke's wrestling factory and an interview with Cody Diener. Until then, have a good one. Granted, I understand it's essentially the same unappreciative crowd full of scumbags from last night's